13. Jackin the Butterfly Jack the Butterfly spent the next hour cultivating the ink in the matchbook. It seemed every day she was giving him something, Shakespeare or another. He could not understand a single line of any of the works. Fucking Shakespeare, he thought. Fuck him. First, he cloned the ink passage. Then, he entered a black hole chamber and spliced the passage into a quantum space-time crotch. This was the equivalent of grafting a flowering fruit tree limb onto the trunk of a rooted parent tree. April 23rd, Shakespeare's birth and death day was the axis of time in New York City around which one week looped over and over, never repeating exactly, but accumulating organically, just like the growth of a fruit tree through quantum feedback. The citizens of New York, for the most part, did not sense it, as they still believed in annual cycles. April 23rd was the 113th day in the old annual calendar. Among its numerous unique properties, the number 113 was ominous, in that it was both a natural prime number and a centered square figurate number, meaning it was the sum of two consecutive square numbers. When drawn as a lattice, 113 made an elegant chessboard-like figure. It was upon this seemingly inorganic lattice that the Naranya Solar Empire had first discovered how to graft photons. But of this, the Shadow Man knew nothing. He was content to be grafted with the shadow, the quantum void. Within the black hole chamber, a dark cylindrical room on the outside, and an amorphous place with no hard boundaries on the inside, the air had a static charge. Black hole crotches, like tiny tree knots in space and time, what he called butterflies, fluttered, evoking a low, buzzing sound. In the earliest days of his experiments, upon entering the chamber, he would don a protective suit reminiscent of a beekeeper meets radiation suit. The butterflies would cling to him as he manipulated space and time like taffy, blending past and future into Mobius strips shaped like little butterflies. These crotches, these pseudo-lepidopterans, were tiny by butterfly scale and to the casual eye might appear as gnats. 
in their quantum chrysalis stage, they contained all potential change within. Jack vaguely recalled his time in Ningbo when he had himself been a merchant, cloning real butterflies for agriculture and entertainment. As agriculture became increasingly biosynthesized, it became necessary to generate insects that could tolerate and enhance the engineered species. It had also become popular to release butterflies at events like weddings and inaugurations, and Jack's pioneering butterfly cloning business had easily made him a millionaire. When Jack's business shifted away from biological cloning to quantum grafting, he experimented further, as far as science could take him, with the cosmic essence of the butterfly, a creature so unique in its ability to become, from a kind of wormy thing, something extraordinary and beautiful. It was during this time he grafted his first black hole butterfly. His grafting experiments failed frequently, but the few that succeeded took him to America, to New York City, to the two brothers Tong. In time, his ability to manipulate and transform reality through nano-organic grafting, what became the origin of what he later called his black hole butterflies, gave him the power to take over Chinatown, New York City. And in time, he no longer donned the suit. Jack the Black Hole Keeper, a dense wireframe of cosmic darkness meets man, had evolved into a black hole butterfly. Jack had grafted himself so many times he could no longer recall exactly who he had been. No more than a butterfly would be disgraced by its emergence from the chrysalis if instead of bursting with brilliant color it turned out only to be a black moth of sorts. What he was becoming in Chinatown, a kind of cocoon of darkness, did not unsettle him. Jack the Shadow Man, Jack the Butterfly, sampled the ink phrase Archvillain again from the matchbook. He set about grafting the phrase again, a task he would have to repeat 113 times that night. 113. Tedious, but lucrative. He donned quantum goggles, which magnified the quantum scale so that it seemed fully touchable by human hands. He took the body of a chrysalis by miniature forceps and placed it 
into a space-time crotch. In another box, which functioned as both a quantum sampler and regenerator, he placed the original matchbook. Years earlier, he found success developing a strain of papyrus in which lignin, a chemical compound found in all vascular plants, and key to paper production, mostly newsprint and brown papers used for boxes and bags, could allow for the conduction of ink through a plant's cellular structure. Lignin, a so-called hydrophobe, was critical in allowing for the conductivity of water through the vascular system of a plant. Lignin provided, in essence, the vascularity, the veins, the tubing structure without which water would too easily pass from one cell to another. Jack had modified the lignin so that it became a graphphobe, phobic of ink, and at the nano-organic level, he injected his ink into the vascular structure of the living papyrus he maintained in an artificial wetlands of sorts in his lab. He had no idea then that the ink he sampled from a newspaper article would replicate itself and graft into a living organic pattern within the plant. What use he could possibly have for authoring actual language into plants, he did not know. He simply monitored the experiments in which ink organically entrained, like the spots of the leopard moth or the ridges in an oak leaf, into the identifiable markings of a species. Further research with inks led him to realize that lignin, when burnt, provided the powder form of carbon black, used in anything from automobile tires to mascara. When he realized that the global leader in innovative lignin research and developments was located in New Jersey and not Ningbo, he left for New York City. Years passed when he discovered, unrolling his grafted papyrus scrolls, that the original news story he had sampled the ink from was transforming as if an editor or journalist was actively typesetting into the vascular structure of the plant. He felt what was akin to hair standing up on his arms, prickling his entire body. Plants, long thought to be responsive to human speech, he realized, were thinking, or perhaps more ominously, the original authors of the texts were thinking through them. He then wasted no time injecting ink into the quantum butterflies, and he discovered 
he could also transform the patterns in their wings. And he realized, too, the butterflies were thinking, or somehow, through the potential intelligence inherent in the sampled text inks, they had become vehicles for the author. Either dead authors had been brought to life, or ink was writing itself. In any regard, it was too late when he realized the ink had the seductive power of heroin. He was already smitten, then seduced by the ink, ravaging his veins. Jack sampled the phrase from the matchbook. The orange woman, as he called her, was paying him with his rival's DNA, and even more valuable to him, with the DNA lifted from the man's tattoo-inked skin. That was worth everything to Jack, or at least to what little he still cared about. Jack isolated the odd phrase about the arch-villain again, sampling it through a nanoscanner, boiling the ink to make it liquid, and carefully injecting it into the chrysalis. The metamorphosis would take place within a week, and he could not guarantee what would emerge from the cocoon. He never could. Once any ink had been sampled by Jack the Butterfly and copied at its quantum core, it gave him and his client access to the author's will. A novelty, at the least, and a dangerous weapon, at the most. For the Naranya Empire, which had also discovered how to sample the will of authors through ink, it was the will of Shakespeare himself that it coveted. If the Naranya Empire's collection of Shakespearean folios were to be destroyed, the elegant reality Naranya had cultivated would snarl into chaos. For Jules Barbion and Agent Orange, they cared only somewhat about the seemingly frivolous matchbook company owner's interest in Shakespearean neologism and very explicitly for his will to start fires. They believed each time Jack sampled the ink phrase arch-villain, a primordial quantum arson was, like quantum paper giving in to an inky villain, combusting. Agent Orange peered at the Naranya Tower in the Manhattan skyline from her orange security penthouse in Times Square. The city lights reflected in her shiny helmet, curving the skyline in miniature around it. Naranya, she thought. 
You've met your match.